This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Fly fishing is what it is today because of some of the legends who left us this legacy. Today is the first of several podcasts we plan to do on Legends of Fly Fishing. We want to highlight the women and the men who helped make this sport what it is. We begin today with a man that Tom Brokaw, the news journalist, calls the father of modern fly fishing, and that man is Joe Brooks. After we talk about Joe Brooks, keep listening for our other two segments, Great Stuff from Our Listeners and Hook Set, where we ponder a quote about fly fishing. Dave, I first heard about Joe Brooks from Edwin and Helen Nelson, who turned their Spring Creek into the fabled fishery that it is today. Nelson's Spring Creek in Paradise Valley, south of Livingston, Montana. But much of the information we're going to share today comes from a documentary that the Joe Brooks Foundation has recently released. And Dave, you actually tipped me off to this. I saw that there was going to be a premiere of the 90-minute film in Bozeman. And uh, you purchased it. We yeah, let the record it. show with my money. Yes, you did. Yes. And somehow I was able to watch it as well. It's called Finding Joe Brooks. And it was produced by his two great nephews. Yeah, they went on a three-year journey beginning in 2014 to find the people and places touched by his life. I think they realized that he had been largely forgotten uh, by younger fly fishers. And anyway, you can purchase that uh, online for about thirty-four ninety-nine, or half of that, Dave, would be seventeen fifty. <laughs> no, my my gift 48. to you, my gift to you. Uh, anyway, just Google the title or go to the Joe Brooks Foundation website. That's easy enough to find, and and you can uh, you can look at it if you want. So let's talk a little bit about the trajectory of Joe Brooks' life. When you think about his life, where, where does where does this all start? You can really see that in Joe Brooks' life, there was a first half of life and a second half of life. And it was marked very clearly, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. He was born in 1901 in Baltimore, Maryland. So he's an East Coast person, East Coast born and, and really bred. He, he uh, was raised with a family. Well, he was raised in a family that had a business. And I think the expectation was that he was going to work in that business which he resisted for many, many years. But yep. he fly fished in the Adirondacks while playing semi-pro baseball. And I, I think, think, too, the Orioles were originally interested. They in were, him, actually. They? But that's then actually, his, that's his right. dad kind of put the kibosh on that. Yeah, his dad he, said absolutely yeah. not. But yeah. he was an incredible athlete. Yeah. Reminds me of my wife's great uncle, Lee Fund, who went to Illinois, University of Illinois, played football, basketball, and, uh, and baseball. So he was a three-sport athlete. That's right. He and, knew Jackie Robinson. Yeah, good friends with Jackie Robinson. Yeah, he was Robinson, good friends with me. Jackie Robinson. Right. In fact, that movie, the movie 42, all those scenes, he would have been with Jackie Robinson. Man. And so Jackie was just coming up with the Brooklyn Dodgers when Uncle Lee was just coming back down the majors. Yeah. He had, uh, I think it was elbow surgery yeah. or something and you, like you that. Yeah, and you took your Uncle Lee to that, that movie, didn't you? We did. We oh, all cool. went to that movie. He died several years ago, but I think he was like... 
90 or something yeah, when, he, when he died. So, um, yeah, it was really, it was just a terrific time. But yeah. back to Joe Brooks. Yeah. Joe was a terrific, terrific athlete. And and he's one of those guys that you just always are annoyed by because he's good at everything he yeah. does. And uh, But he did drink heavily. And I think uh, if you watch this movie, they are actually amazingly honest yeah. mm-hmm. about the first half of his life. Yeah. Arguably, he was a drunk, and family members yeah. had to get him out of jail. That's they said, how they described it. Yeah, yeah, at least once a week. Yeah. He got in bar fights. Essentially, he was an alcoholic. Yeah, yep. Yeah, golf, uh, boxing, he was really something. But then, in his early 30s, he vanished, and everybody thought that he was... That was crazy I know. to me. Everybody thought he was dead, and I guess... Apparently, he never really said all that he did. I mean, the speculation was he was just out on the streets and was kind of surviving and drinking. And then he reappeared in 1937 after graduate. So think about that. He's 36 or somewhere. Like He's born in 1901. I don't know his exact birth date, but he's 35, 36. After he graduated from this month-long treatment program at a sanitarium in Toronto. To get him sober. Yeah. And wasn't the the treatment was later debunked, wasn't it? It was. It was was this where they pour these chemicals in your body to try to rid you of whatever this disease was. Well, alcoholism, we know it now to be a disease, but back then it was only later that they actually began to realize it is a disease. The one thing you didn't mention here, though, there was a stretch in his 20s that he was married to a socialite. Yeah, that's right. On the mm-hmm. East Coast in in, in Baltimore, and uh, they actually have some clips about him and her. Apparently, mm. they lived this very large life. So either yeah. she came mm-hmm. from money, or maybe his family had some money. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the marriage lasted very long. No. And then shortly after, I think is when he disappeared for a yeah. while, and then reappeared in 1937. Yeah. It's a strange. When you think of Joe Brooks, you think of fly fishing. Yeah. I had no idea about this. No, and that's what his great nephews who produced this film said. Nobody nobody really knows that story of his life. Well, yeah, you talk about splitting his life into that first half, second half. So I guess the, the transition period when he really began to focus was uh, after he got out of the sanitarium. And he, he had loved to fish when he was a kid, so he... Just got reintroduced to that passion. Uh, went back to Baltimore to live with his mother. Joined the the Maryland State Game Fish Protective Association. Unbelievable. Yeah. So it was an early conservation organization. And and he ended up, uh, I mean, he was one of the first to write about fly fishing. He became an outdoor writer for a kind of a fledgling newspaper. And I love his column. It was called Pools and Ripples. That's pretty creative, <laughs> That is isn't great. It? Great title. Yeah, that would still work today. But now that you know Joe Brooks yep, used you're it. You're ripping we, it off yeah, if we, you use that's it. That's right. And then he, what, during World War II, served in the Coast Guard. And it was after that that he met Mary. And that was a kind of a fascinating story, wasn't it? Right. She was the travel. Well, now this would have, this ends up, she ends up being his third wife. Yeah. So right, apparently yeah. there was another mm-hmm. one in there. And but she but Mary was the travel and tourism director for the province of Ontario, and she was her own person. I mean, she had her yeah. career in writing yep. and fishing. She was an amazing athlete as well, and she traveled to the Outdoor Writers Association meeting in Florida to try to get outdoor writers to come and fish there, and then write about it. 
and Joe wasn't a prominent enough writer to warrant a spot on the trip. <clears throat> but during that time, he had landed a trip to Alaska, and his stature as a writer began to grow. And then at the last minute, somebody backed out on this trip to Ontario, and Mary decided to invite Joe to go to Ontario. Unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? Wow. Ostensibly, Joe's writing at that yeah. point was not polished, but Mary's was. <laughs> That's funny. So they... Arguably, I don't know if the word is hooked up, but they yeah. connected up in yeah. Ontario and they got married in 1949. Yeah, and set out in this life of, of adventure. And, you know, the, the relatives, the nephews, great nephews in the, movie, in the documentary make it a point to say that he promised her that he'd never drink again, and apparently he never did. And one of the things that his great nephew Michael said that I thought was really stunning is that uh, now as we get to the second half of his life, we get to the success side that uh, everything he did, he did in a 20-year period of time from about 1952 until he died in 72. And I, I'm not exactly sure in, in 52 maybe what the, you know, or maybe that 20 years is just kind of a, a round number. Uh, can't remember if there was anything definitive, but I guess by 1952, he had become a prolific outdoor writer. He had writer. been established by the Yeah, movie. yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the key. You know, they made the point, too, that kids in the 1950s, and think about this, this is after World War II, and, and guys are coming home, and they want to explore the outdoors, and, and kids in the 1950s were reading stacks of outdoor magazines. I guess there were four then. There, there was Outdoor Life, Field uh, and Stream, Field and Stream, Sports of Field, and then... Then uh, what? There was one in Nebraska. Was it Fur Fish and Game? Yeah, or fur, like yeah that? fur Fish and Game. Remember, it had all those ads in yeah, the back. Mm -hmm. yeah. I remember when I was a kid uh, reading the Pennsylvania Game News. I thought that might have been as old, but maybe not. But uh, anyway, the, they made a point in this documentary that kids in the 1950s were, man, they were. They'd go to barber shops. They were reading stacks of these outdoor magazines, and I think, man, that's. You know, how things have changed. You had a whole generation where that was the thing to do. And, and now it's video games and there's other interests. And yeah, you still have some kids that love the outdoors. But have we talked about that before? How even the interest in the outdoors has shifted? It, it's gone away from hunting and fishing to uh, rock climbing to... More adventure outdoor yeah, sports. Mountain kind of biking. Extreme I mean, kayaking. Yeah, and so you have REI... Uh, for example, in that space that, I don't know, they, they do as much as, say, a Bass Pro Shop slash Cabela's. But, yeah, I, I thought about that. Man, that the culture was really ripe, wasn't it, for that interest in the outdoors. And you think about magazines, it became a channel for people to learn about it. Yeah, there weren't any videos. Yeah, you know, the Internet really killed magazines. I worked for yeah. a magazine. Um, was one of my first professional jobs as an editor called Leadership Journal, which is now no longer, doesn't exist anymore. And, but it was very, very successful during about a 20 to yeah. 30 year run. And, but when the internet came, it killed magazines. Yeah. And the killing of the magazines, there's, it's been a cost to that. Yeah, there has. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think reading is one of them. There's just something wonderful. Mm -hmm. I've always really enjoyed picking up Field and Stream, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Sports Illustrated, and now it's like I just don't do it as much. I'm no, trying to think. No. 
I don't even think I get a single magazine anymore. No, I, do you? I'm, no, I'm the same way. I I read most everything like that online, and yeah, there's a there's a downside to that. Hey, you know, it's you talk about Joe's writing. Uh, his his approach to writing was don't display knowledge, but share knowledge. Yeah, that was yeah. so good. Don't display knowledge, which basically... Don't show off. Don't yeah. show off. I'm writing. I'm writing yeah. using big words. Yes. I remember there was also something in there about not using adjectives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but somebody had made some... Or don't use a big word when you can use a little word or yeah. a more mm -hmm. plain word. Right. I forget what yeah. they said about that, but that's just good writing. Yeah, right? it really is. Uh, often you can tell mm -hmm. uh, a novice writer by... They have so many adjectives mm -hmm. and so many adverbs. Yep. And their nouns need to be stronger and their verbs need to be stronger. Yep. And this just goes to show that the good principles of writing... I mean, they were teaching Joe that early yeah. on back in the yep. day. So uh, it, it was just fun to read about that, yeah. his, how he grew in a, as a writer. Yeah, he really did. Dave, if I remember, too, from the documentary, it seems like his appearance on ABC's Wide World of Sports in 1963 or 64 with Kurt Gowdy was, uh, it seems like that really produced a spike in his popularity, yeah, no doubt. didn't it? No doubt that's true. And he was in Argentina, in Patagonia, uh, a place that he had visited and popularized and yeah. definitely contributed to his, yeah. fame, his fame. And I guess it led Gaudi to a spinoff program called The American Sportsman. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. which ran for like 20 years, 1965 to 1985. Huh. Yeah, it's when he first traveled to Argentina, I thought it was interesting. There were only a few local fly fishers and... And I guess he wowed them with his fiberglass rods and his casting and his approach. And they had never seen anything like it. Well, and, and I, you see that one picture, and they said he was doing the double haul back yeah, then. Yeah, And I've never heard, was that associated directly to, to Joe, uh, Joe Brooks? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, who else was in that era? It would have been Lee, Lee Wolf. Wolf. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Lee Wolf often is is the person who they say was the one who first really promoted, I don't know if the first idea mm -hmm. came from him, but the idea of catch and release. Yeah. But they also attributed that to Joe Brooks. Yeah. My guess is it's not like today where there was the internet and you could, my guess is that these things were happening simultaneously. Exactly. Right? I bet you're right. I bet you're right. And then in the 1960s, in the early part of the 60s, he encouraged avid fishers like Lefty Cray to write and appear on outdoor television shows do demonstrations, do clinics, and I, I thought it was interesting. Cray sought him out at the time and said, tell me how to get where you are, and some people simply wouldn't do that, but uh, Joe Brooks did. I think he was fishing editor of Outdoor Life at the time, and Cray really credits him. Uh, Lefty Cray, uh, what, he passed away, it's been within the last year or two, right? Right, and yeah. what made this documentary so great is there's a lot of narrative from Lefty Cray. In fact, a big chunk of the documentary is Lefty Cray recounting his encounters with Joe Brooks while he's sitting at a fly tying bench and tying flies. Yeah. It's probably one of the best parts of the documentary. So he must have passed away within arguably yeah. months yep. after that after yeah. he, that documentary was shot. I think so boy, that was something yeah, just to hear him uh, recount his experiences. Uh, I'm sure we'll do a, a Legends of Fly Fishing on, on, Lefty. on Lefty Cray yeah, for sure. as well. 
Well, kind of the final aspect of his second half of his life that we wanted to talk about is, is paradise. And that's uh, what he considered Montana to be. He said his favorite place in the U.S. to fly fish was Montana. And in 1952, Joe and Mary Brooks came to Nelson Spring Creek Ranch in 1952. And that was a uh, that was kind of moving for me to see that. I, uh, my folks lived in Paradise Valley for about 14 years. I lived there for a year and uh, worked uh, just with some ranches around the valley. And I did some work on uh, Nelson Spring Creek Ranch and got to know Edwin and Helen uh, you know, fairly well. And, and through the years, uh, you know, I'd see them at basketball games their their granddaughter was a Katie was a terrific referee and but anyway Edwin had bought the ranch because of the spring creek but it certainly wasn't for fishing uh, he bought it because the temperatures were always 55 to 56 even in the winter so he wouldn't have to chop ice to uh, you know let the cattle drink so that was his uh, that was his Motivation, motivation to buy the ranch, yeah. And then, you know, there were some people who fished it occasionally, and somebody told Joe Brooks about it, so he and Mary came out. And I remember Edwin and Helen uh, talking about how on that first trip, uh, Joe and Mary had to stay in their very rough, primitive bunkhouse because uh, Edwin and Helen had gotten married, and they were living on the little house in the ranch that Joe and Mary were going to stay in. And... Anyway, Joe Brooks was uh, so instrumental in uh, helping them learn to manage that spring creek. Uh, he was the one who encouraged the Nelsons to go to catch and release and also to charge a rod fee. Yeah, that's amazing. Isn't it? Uh, this is what I, I remember Edwin and Helen saying that they started doing this in 1960. And initially, the, the rod fee was $5 a day. <laughs> That's amazing. That? And it didn't set well with the locals. And they said some of their own family members, their relatives, were not happy. That... <laughs> they probably charged them. <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> By the way, today the rod fee is, uh, you know, it varies from, t from uh, time of year in the off season from November 1st to March 31st. It's $40 a day. Uh, but otherwise, uh, starting in April 1st, it's $80, then it goes up to 100 and then that, that the last two weeks of July, it's 120 and that's probably because everybody from the Midwest is on vacation. That's when they're coming out so to Montana. Are you, is there a guide that you have to have? Can you fish it no. without a guide? Yeah, you can fish it without a guide. Uh, you have to sign in. They limit the number of rods. It's not a it's not a huge section of creek. How how long is this? So what's interesting about the Nelson Spring yeah. Creek is that it's right near the Yellowstone. How many? Yeah, it how runs close into the. It? Oh, it runs it into the Yellowstone. It flows into the Yellowstone. Yeah. yeah. Remember, we've actually fished when we floated with one oh, of with our Cumming, friends. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah, yeah, we fished up it a little bit. We fished bit. it up a little bit. There's a there's a fence then, which is kind of there property and in Montana the stream side access law uh, doesn't allow you to to walk on spring creeks because there's no uh, high no, water mark. right there's no high water mark so those are protected and that makes that makes a lot of sense so but, you can't cross that fence correct you can't you're you're trespassing if you do huh. that it's not like you could stay in the creek and, and walk up that but yeah their stretch isn't that long I don't know if it's even a quarter of a mile uh, I should remember because I fished it a few times, but uh, 
yeah, it, it's a small section, but it's, no, you don't have to have a guide. It's, if, if you're doing it for the first time, you probably, probably need yeah, a guide. unless you're a really accomplished fly fisher. And now, um, Tucker Nelson, it would be Edwin and Helen's grandson, uh, their son Roger and his wife Mary uh, kind of run the ranch now, and Tucker and his wife, uh, you know, they, they do some guiding, and, and I've, I've heard they're both really good guides. Huh. So, I mean, that is a once kind of in a lifetime experience, and, you know, we're, I've, I've been on it a few times, but I'd like to go back and do it again. Sometime we'll do that. Yeah, but, I, I've never been on that Spring yeah. Creek, and I think it would be fun to do once. I don't yeah. know. It's There's not a lot of river, right? So no. not a lot of... Not a long stretch. No. I'm not sure I'd enjoy going back and just sitting in front of one run and, and fishing. Yeah, all the that's time, that's but. the only thing. And what you really do is you wait for hatches, and you you spot rising fish. Of course, I would always go to the places where there were riffles. But some of the guys that are really accomplished, and I finally did this. I finally caught an 18 inch rainbow on a, you know, on a probably a size 20. I, I don't know if it was a comparadon or what it was or some betas pattern, but it was one that I spotted that was rising in in uh, water that, you know, it was hardly, I mean, it was moving, but you could hardly tell. It was just like a pond, and I I really felt like I had arrived, you know, yeah, when, no when doubt. I did that, and of course I haven't arrived. Trout we are very that, selective on those streams. They are. But I, I think back, yeah, Joe Brooks was a, a huge part of that, and he and Mary would go back. Fact, at the end of that documentary, uh, they said that he, you know, the heart attack that took his life, I mean, if you read an obituary or something, it says he died in Rochester, Minnesota. But that was a couple days after he had the heart attack when he was fishing Nelson Spring Creek. So he died on the river. Basically. I mean, yeah, apparently he died when he got well, back had the to heart Rochester. attack on yeah the right yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's so. a good way to go don't you think yeah i, think I mean i don't want to go that early but no i think that's they, they said that's how he wanted to go and he did so so how about some reflections dave uh you know what, what are some things that stand out to you one of the big things is is that he had a big heart yeah he did so there was no arrogance there was no and I certainly am not, you and I are not really a part of the uh, fly fishing, well, not at all, right, fly fishing yeah. literati. So I don't right. know. But I've heard this mm. true also of Lefty Cray, who just would talk to anybody yeah. and engage mm -hmm. anyone. And that was true of Joe Brooks. There's a little, yeah. just a little anecdote when he was on Henry's Fork of the Snake River and his friend went and chewed out some fly fishers who were crowding them in the river and yeah the guy said hey you know i've got joe brooks here he's the outdoor editor for outdoor life and if you get any closer to us you know you're going to be sorry yeah it was it, it's something that you know i would probably do <laughs> <laughs> but anyway when joe realized you would say i'm fishing with steve matthewson of two guys in a river do you know who he is and they would go wow <laughs> Anyway, when Joe realized what had happened, he went over and volunteered his help to the two fly fishers. That's amazing, isn't it? So he had a big heart. And you look at the second half of his life, and maybe because he was so broken in the first half mm -hmm. of his life, yep. you just sense that this guy was really grateful. Yeah, a couple days before his death, remember he invited, a, and this is in the documentary, he invited a guy and his wife. Uh, they they met in a cafe in Livingston, and he said, hey, come fly fish with me on Nelson Spring Creek. And and they did that, and I don't know, it must have been a day or two before uh, 
uh, Joe passed away within a few days because then when they were on their way back, they saw in a newspaper that he had passed away. So, you yeah. know, I did mention this earlier, but one of the things that was so hilarious was he was he founded this organization called the Brotherhood of the Jungle Cock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I like, OK, so how did that title come up? The Brotherhood of the Jungle Cock. And this the concept was all about teaching youngsters about fishing and conservation of our natural resources. Wow. That's just the most bizarre name. Yeah, for it really is. Outdoor conservation I know organization. It. I know it. <laughs> Oh, man. What else would you say, Dave? Another theme for this is, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the, of, the, of the episode, is the first half of life versus the second half of life. His trajectory is actually different from most men, and it's not necessarily different for most women. But uh, for men, often you find they're very, very successful in the first half of life, and they hit their 50s, and they hit some wall. Maybe it's divorce, maybe it's uh, some something, a failure in business, or all of a sudden they can't find a job, they lose their job. It's something significant, they lose a child. And and all of a sudden they have, there's, that kind of is a marker for the start of the second half of their life. And they have to think about their life differently. Yeah. When you think of Joe Brooks' life, what I should say is that's one archetype where you have a success in the first half of life and then the second half of life, you have to think about how to manage meaning in your life mm-hmm. differently, right? It's not about success anymore. So Joe Brooks really had a completely different trajectory. His first half was complete and abject failure yeah. on many different levels. Yep. But in the second half of his life, you look at the trajectory of his life in the second half, and it's amazing to me. Yeah, It's actually really encouraging about those of you who are, say, 40 and older. There's just a lot of life to live left. Yeah. And there's still a lot of life left to live and a lot of contribution that you can make yet in this world. And you look at Joe Brooks' life, yeah. I mean, arguably, he didn't really start making his mark until his early 50s. Right, and even though he fished before, uh, yeah, he really didn't start fly fishing in earnest until his late 30s. So that's kind of an encouragement, too. You're never too old to uh, learn to, to fly fish. And to make a difference. Yeah, that's right. Another one, I think, is that there's really nothing new under the sun since Joe Brooks. Yeah. He, uh, you know, the double haul, I mentioned that. He was doing the double haul, at least in Patagonia, when I saw that picture, and they'd mentioned it, uh, or at least that video, and it was a video that they had or a clip that they had. Moving. Right. Um, and, and he was also doing saltwater fishing. Yeah. And you realize that everything that's happening today in fly fishing has been done for the last yeah. 50 or 60 mm-hmm. years. There's really nothing new under the sun. It's just refinements. Of, it's uh, just refinements, yeah. yeah. And it Joe really Brooks is. really was yeah. the pioneer. Yep. And again, that documentary is called uh, Finding uh, Joe Brooks. And it's more of a hagiography. Uh, you know, what do you mean by that? What's a hagiography? A hagiography is really a biography that praises and idealizes its subject. Got and, it. Yep. Uh, but I will say this, because it was really produced by his grandnephews, right? Or great-nephews. Right. Mm-hmm. Great-nephews. Great great-nephews, yeah. So so obviously they have a stake in the game. But I really was encouraged. I thought they did a really good job about the first half of his, yeah. his life. Mm-hmm. They didn't sanitize it. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I thought it was much, uh, much a better... It, it was a much better film yeah. or short story or whatever short film than it could have been 
given the fact that it was done by his family. So I just thought, I thought it was an outstanding documentary. Uh, it, it's it's a little slow in places, right. mm-hmm. but if you really want to understand fishing, especially fly fishing in this country, that yeah. is the United States post-World War II, if you don't understand Joe Brooks, you really don't understand the sport. Exactly. So we have a lot to uh, thank him for. I mean, what we do is uh, really his legacy, and I think Lefty Cray summed it up. Without Joe, fly fishing would not have reached the pinnacle it has today. Well, it's time for great stuff from our listeners. This is a comment from Nina on our podcast on taking our podcast on taking an exotic fly fishing trip. This is what Nina writes. She said, "My husband and I have done many adventure trips, not fly fishing though. Our honeymoon was a horseback riding trip across the south of France." It's like, wow. Uh, there was an obnoxious fox hunter from New York who spent the entire week being a jerk. He finally got his comeuppance when, trying to jostle past me up a narrow mountain trail, my horse raised his tail and pooped down his leg into his boot. (laughs) She says, I'll give him this. He had a sense of humor. He said, at least it's warm. We've been riding for several days in the rain. After several other trips, we concluded there's a herb on every trip. It gives us a more philosophical approach to the self-seeking attention grabbers. And FYI, don't be shocked if Herb turns out to be a six-year-old. It's happened. Love the podcast. Oh, that's a oh, great comment. It really is. There is a Herb oh, on man. every trip. Oh, no kidding. Oh, we could do a podcast on we that. We should do yeah, that. I know. All the Herbs on our different oh, trips that boy. we've taken through the years. Some, some oh, outdoors, man. some mission trips. Some... Oh, man. That's so true. <laughs> that is that's hilarious. Great. Oh, thanks, Nina. That is, uh, that is that great. That quote makes our day. Well, it's time to set the hook and land this podcast. Hook set is where we set the proverbial hook and wrap up our podcast by sharing a quote that we reflect on for a few minutes. Since this episode was on Joe Brooks, I thought it would be appropriate to end with a quote from his wife, Mary. At the end of her preface to Growing Up in Paradise, the history of Nelson's Spring Creek Ranch, she talks about a difficult transition to fly fishing on the creek. She said that when she first started fishing Nelson's, it was a long summer, hooked on weeds and trees and losing fish and handfuls of moss. But then she ends with these words, and here's our quote. But I persevered, fell in love with fly fishing, and eventually learned that fly fishermen are not all crazy, as I had secretly suspected, but are just having more fun than anyone else in the world. Wow, that's great! (laughs) Oh, yes. Fly fishers, we have a lot more fun, don't we? We think we do anyway. I think we do. It's hard to know. Do we have more fun than golfers? Well, I'll say this. The way I golf, I have a lot more fun fly fishing than Uh, golfing. I know that for sure. (laughs) You know, maybe backpackers and adventure kayakers and mountain climbers. I don't know. Fly fishing, I agree with that 100%. Yeah, it really is true. In fact, in that little book that... uh, Edwin and Hell and Nelson uh, wrote, and I think it's kind of Edwin's voice, but I think they talk about a time when Joe and Mary were there, and th- this is before they were doing some of the catch and release, but they just sent Joe and Mary down to the river. They caught a bunch of trout to have a fish fry, and you know they had sweet corn, and you know just sitting out, looking out over the river, and yeah, there, there's something about fly that fishing that, so that awesome. puts you in the kinds of places where... Uh, those things can happen. Yeah. So it's uh, 
Yeah, that's terrific. You, you don't have to be crazy to be a fly fisher, but you have to be committed to having fun. And that's what our podcast is about, isn't it? That's exactly right. Catching fish and that's right. enjoying your time more on the river. That's for sure. Well, that'll do it for today. Thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. <laughs>